All right, we're going to start with the Mishnah on the top of Yutet Amad Aleph. The Mishnah says, Benir shalach the krach, uben krach shalach leir. So just to remind ourselves from earlier on in the Masech, the Benir is someone from, from a city that does not have a wall around it, or someone who would read on the 14th of Adar. On the other hand, a krach is someone who is from a walled city who would have to read on the 15th of Adar. So here you have a Ben-Ear, someone who is from a city that would read on the 14th, that went to a city that reads on the 15th, or someone who is from a city who reads on the 15th, then goes to a city that reads on the 14th. Im atidach zodim komo, if he intends to return to his normal location, korek him komo, then he reads like his location. Vim lav, if not, korei mahem, then he reads with them, Alright, this is somewhat ambiguous, and we'll discuss it in a second. There are three different ways to read this Mishnah, three different ways in which the statement of Rava and the Gemara comes out. So, reading, leaving it a little bit ambiguous now, and then we'll deal with it within Rava. Something that we mentioned in yesterday's Gemara as well, which is, from where do you have to read the Megillah? And then you're And with that, you're the of reading the Megillah. Rabbi Meir Omer Kula. Rabbi Meir says the entirety of the Megillah. Rabbi Yehuda Omer Mi'ishudi. If to start from that part of the Megillah, Mi'ishudi, Ayah B'Shushan Abira. Rabbi Yosi Omer Me'achar Advarim Ha'ele Gidel HaMelech Et Haman. So you start from that location. So three different sections or situations in which you can begin the Megillah. And here you have a three-way machloket as to where do you begin to read the Megillah. The Gemara will discuss why each of these positions exists, and whether you need to have a full Megillah, despite the fact that you only have to read a portion of the Megillah. Right now, here comes Rava's statement. Rava's statement is a qualification of what we just said in the Mishnah, which is Amarava. This is only true if he intends to return on the night of the 14th. If he does not intend to return on the night of the 14th, then he reads with them. Alright, so here is where you have a three-way machloket as to how to explain our Gemara over here. The Gemara says that we have some sort of movement between individuals. An individual who might be have to read on the 14th, or an individual might have to read on the 15th. The question of Roba's qualification, number one, is what is he qualifying in the Mishnah? Number two is... Is that for both cases in the Mishnah, one of the cases in the Mishnah, and then we can extrapolate to the other case? That is what is subject to a machloket. I'll tell you the two other approaches, and then we'll use the approach of Rashi. The approach of Rashi is also quoted by the Shulchan Aruch as being the explanation in the Rambam, and the Mishnah Bura, in explaining this case, also quotes that of Rashi. But he tells you in the Ber Halacha over there, don't be so mech on what I'm teaching you over here, because this is only one of a number of opinions. And if you want to make a bracha, make sure that you see the other opinions. And he says, please take a look in the primigodim to figure out exactly all the different opinions over here. So we'll do, use the primigodim to understand those opinions. And he says, the first opinion in the primigodim is, Derova aben ir shalach the krach koi. He's talking about a case where it's a person who is a ben ir, someone who lives in a city that reads on the 14th, that went to a walled city. And then, Umine nilmad, and from that we can extrapolate to the Ben Krach. Someone was in a walled city, Shalach the that went to an unwalled city. Ukufize, Ben Ir the Krach, that a person who is a Ben Ir, someone who is on a 14th that went to a 15th, Imdatola Shir be Yudalit Shacharit be Krach, Shuzman Kriato. If he intends to remain in the walled city on the morning of the 14th, which is his time to read because he's from an unwalled city, but tell me Allah min kriato Then he eliminates from himself the kriya and he reads on the fi- on the fifteenth. So the way that this first opinion reads the Gemara, or the way they ex- that Rav is explaining it, is that depending when your obligation is, is the determining factor. So for instance, if your obligation is on the fourteenth because you came from an unwalled city, then on the morning of the fourteenth, if you're outside of your place of obligation, then you've now dismissed your obligation in that place, and you become a member of the alternate location. So that means if you are from an unwalled city, 
the morning of the 14th, if you're not in your city, but rather in a walled city, you're no longer obligated to read the Megillah on the 14th, like you should have, because that's where you were from, because you are in a walled city, and now you become obligated on the 15th. And the same would be true in reverse, which is someone who is from a walled city who would normally read on the 15th. If on the morning of the 15th, they're not going to be in their location, meaning that they're going to be in an unwalled city on that time, then they're patur from reading on the 15th, and they must have read on the 14th beforehand. So the first opinion, which is rejected by the Beit Yosef, and is rejected by others, it says that the explanation here in Rava is that we're trying to determine how to be poter yourself. The morning tells us when you are patur. So if you are in the wrong location, we'll call it, or the location where you would not be obligated on that morning when your natural home would have obligated you, then you are poter yourself. That is the first way to read Rava. The second way to read Rava is that of the Rosh. The Rosh says that Rava is actually explaining to us both cases in the Mishnah. And that is the morning of the 14th is determinant whether you are from a walled city or an unwalled city, wherever you are on the morning of the 14th, that determines where you're going to read the Megillah. So if you're in an unwalled city on the morning of the 14th, you're going to read the Megillah that day. If you're in a walled city on the morning of the 14th, then you won't read it on the 14th, you'll read it on the 15th. So wherever you are, the morning of the 14th, that is determinant. The 15th doesn't matter anymore. The morning of the 14th determines where your obligation is, and then you'll have to discharge your obligation. If your obligation is to be in, and you're in an unwalled city on the morning of the 14th, you have to discharge it on the 14th. If you are in a walled city on the morning of the 14th, then you'll have to discharge your obligation on the 15th, no matter where you'll be. So the morning of the 14th is determinate. That's the rush is learning. The last way, which we're going to explain now, is Rashi's approach. Rashi's approach is that it actually is the reverse of the first opinion which we said before, which is, This is talking about someone who is from a walled city, and they are in an unwalled city on the morning of the 14th. So if they come to visit a place that does not read on the 15th, they read on the 14th, so, for instance, somebody who lives in Yerushalayim now goes to Tel Aviv. So, in Yerushalayim, he'd be obligated to read the Megillah on the 15th. But now he went to Yerushalayim. Uh, he went to Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, they read on the 14th. If he stays overnight, the night of the 14th, and is there in the morning of the 14th, he is now obligated to read the Megillah like the 14th. That means both the night before, he was obligated already. And now, the next day, he is also obligated to read the Megillah. And the reverse will be true, which is that someone from Tel Aviv, who is in Yerushalayim on the 15th, if they stay overnight in Yerushalayim that night of the 15th through the morning of the 15th, they'll be obligated to read the Megillah on the 15th. Therefore, according to Rashi's approach, you could actually obligate yourself on both days. You could be chayab to read the Megillah both on the 14th and the 15th. That is not true according to the Rosh. According to the Rosh, the morning of the 14th is determinate. So you're in one or the other on the morning of the 14th, and you're chayav either on the 14th or the 15th. According to the first opinion that we brought, then you could actually be patur in both locations, because the morning determines where you are. So it'll be the reverse of Rashi's position. But according to Rashi's position, you could actually be obligated on both times. If you are in Tel Aviv on the night of the 14th through the morning of the 14th, you'll be obligated to read the Megillah on the 14th in Tel Aviv. If you then go to Yerushalayim the night of the 15th and stay through the morning of the 15th, you'll be obligated again to read the Megillah on the 15th. So you can actually obligate yourself on both times. Now, Rashi seems to indicate that it's not that you actually stay there or don't stay there. It has to do with your intention. Do you intend to stay or do you not intend to stay? So if you intend to stay there through the morning, and you do stay there through the morning, then that will obligate you. If you intend to leave, and for whatever reason you were held back and you didn't leave, you will still be patur, because your intent was to leave. So it actually works only in one direction. So as long as your intention is to leave, despite the fact that you end up staying for whatever exogenous reason that you had to stay, then you are patur from Megillah in that location. On the other hand, if you intended to stay and then you didn't stay, then you can't be chayab. That's what the Taz 
adds in the explanation of Rashi that if you intended to stay and then you had to leave for whatever reason, then you can't say you're obligated in that place because you actually left. You have to physically be in the place to be obligated. And the reason the morning is the determining factor or time for this is because the Ikar Mitzvah of Kriyata Migilah is on the morning. I mean that the daytime reading of the Migilah is the most important reading of the Migilah. So wherever you are at the, that moment when that obligation begins, Alota Shachar on the morning of the 14th, or Alota Shachar on the morning of the 15th, that determines whether you're a part of that location or not that location. So now we'll continue to read the Gemara according to Rashi, but the Mishabru again quotes this Lalocha, quotes Rashi's Shita Lalocha, which is, Amarava, Loshanu That's only true if someone from Yerushalayim went out to Tel Aviv. And then he intended to return that night to Yerushalayim. Then he is not considered to be a part of Tel Aviv, but a part of Yerushalayim. But if he goes to Tel Aviv on the night of 14th and remains there, and again, here it doesn't mean physically remains, but he intended to remain or didn't intend to remain, then then he becomes like a Ben, what we call Ben Pruz the Yomo. He becomes a one-day unwalled city person. And therefore, you have to read on the 14th. And again, the same will be true on the 15th, determining whether you could be chayav. Again, you could be chayav yourself in both locations. Technically, you could be poter yourself in both locations. So, Amarova, mena aminolo. How can I prove to you that there is such a concept that you can be a member of a city for a single day? Because the Pasuk says, Again, yudim apirazim, ayushvim bare apirazot. Mechdeiktiv. Hayudim hapirazim, the Jews in the unwalled cities. Why do you have to tell me that they reside in unwalled cities? Of course, people who are Jews of unwalled cities reside in the unwalled cities. So that extraneous language teaches you that pruz ben yomo nikra pruz, that if you're only in the unwalled city for a single day, you're still considered to be a member of the unwalled city. So even though your residence isn't there, you can temporarily create your residence in that location. So now Ashkachan Pruz, now we have a source for the Nibigula for the fact that someone from an unwalled city can be a member for a single day. Mukaf Minalan, how do we know that that works the other way around, that you can be a member of a walled city for a single day? Svarahu, it's just a logical extension. Midi Pruz ben Yomo Karui Pruz, Mukaf ben Yomo Karui Mukaf. That the fact that someone who is reading on the unwalled city can become a member of the unwalled city for a single day, so too someone who becomes a member of a walled city can also do it for a single day. You don't necessarily have to be residing in that location. You can be a resident for the day of either of these locations. Now, you could argue that the logic does not extend. The Gemara doesn't do this, but you could argue that there is a difference between the 14th and the 15th, which is somewhat along the lines of what the Rosh is doing. Because we know that the Rosh, that the Gemara says, or at least Yushalmi says, with regards to Yudalit, that's Zman Kriyalakol. That's Zman that everybody can read. So Yudalit has a stronger, I call it, magnetic pull in the sense that everybody could be obligated on the 14th. Therefore, someone who's from a walled city can become a member of an unwalled city for the day. Because that's the natural time to read. That's when everybody reads. But the other way may not be true. I mean, if you go from an unwalled city to a walled city, maybe you cannot move your obligation from the 14th over to the 15th. The Gemara does not entertain that, but you could see why, or you can understand the possibility of why that is the case, that you could differentiate. Rava says there is no differentiation. It's a logical extension. If I can become a member of a city for a single day, it doesn't matter if it's an unwalled city. It doesn't matter if it's a walled city. My residence is now established by where I am on dawn of the day, whether it's the 14th or the 15th. Now, we have another extension of Rav, which is there is a third possibility of when you can read the Megillah that we know from the first Mishnah and the Mesechta. You have the unwalled cities reading on the 14th, walled cities reading on the 15th, and the Bnei Akfarim that read on Yom HaKnisa. So here, V'amar Rav, Ben Kfar, Shalach Le'ir, someone who is from the villages, who goes to the unwalled cities on the night of the 14th, Ben Kach, or Ben Kach, Koreyamihem. Doesn't matter if he goes back that night, doesn't matter if he stays overnight, he reads with the people of the city. Now, first of all, Rashi says here, this is a case where he already read on the Yom HaKnisa. So it's already a case where he, he was in the village on the day of Yom HaKnisa, and he read on that day. Despite that fact, if he's found in the city on the night of the 14th, he's got to read again. Tosvot says, wow, that's interesting that Rashi says that, but then in the end he says he's probably right. 
It makes sense that he read on the Yom HaKnisah because he's a member of the village. Despite that fact, he must now repeat it and read it again on the 14th. My taima, hai ir by the mikre. Truthfully, the villagers should have really read on the 14th. Their ikar obligations on the 14th. Virabonon hu But the Rabbonon were mekil. They gave, had a leniency, a dispensation for the villagers. In order to facilitate their ability to provide water and food to the people of the city. Now, again, we learned the different ways, the Rashi, the Rabbeinu Hanano, which they view this, but, that's only true if he's in the village. If he comes to the city, then he has to read like the people of the city. He's only entitled to the dispensation if he remains a member of the villages. But if he comes in on the night of the 14th, then he's now made himself a member of the city because he's now found in the city. He doesn't need the dispensation anymore because he's actually in the city. And therefore, he would have to read the Megillah on the night of the 14th. Whether he intends to return that night, or whether he's staying overnight, he will have to read the Megillah on the night of the 14th because he finds himself in the city on that night. Now, if he leaves the city that night, it's not clear from the Gemara or from Rashi what he would have to do on the day of the 14th. Because if he returns to the village that night, then the next day he's actually not in the city. It might be that he's actually not obligated to read again on the daytime because now he's found in the village. So he will have that dispensation of the village. But the night, since he's found in the city, he can't opt to use that dispensation because he's not found in his village. You could argue that once he opts out and becomes part of the city on the night of the 14th, whether he returns to the village or not, he now becomes a member of the city or the unwalled city and have to read on the 14th entirely. So basically, he suspends his dispensation by being inside the city. Whether he returns or not doesn't really matter. It's the fact that he's in the city now. He no longer is entitled to that dispensation. As long as he's in the city, he's got to read like the people of the unwalled city. Is that really true? Abaye challenges Rava here. So we have a person from a old city that goes to an unwalled city. Whether he does or not, he has to read like his place. All right, so now this is a Brita that Abaya quotes, and Abaya's quote from the Brita seems to indicate that a walled city person that moves or goes to an unwalled city, no matter what he does, he still reads like his original location, which would be against what Rova just said. So the Gemara says, Ben Krach, Sakadat, Right, wait, you're talking about someone who's coming from a walled city? That has to do whether he intends to return or not return. Elav ben Kfar, this must be, this Brightam is talking about a ben Kfar, someone who's from the village. So what you see here is someone's ben Kfar, shalach here, ben kach ben kach korekum komo. Then the Brightam seems to indicate that no matter what, he reads like his location, I meaning he reads like he is a part of the village. So the says, wait a minute, you already had to amend the Brightam because it made no sense that it was talking about a ben Krach. Ben Krach is not relevant, or the Brita can't be talking about Ben Krach, must be talking about Ben Kfar. If you're already amending the Brita, Tnei Korei Mahen, then amend the Brita a little more, and say, and instead of saying that he, Ben Kach, Ben Kach, Korei Kim Komo, it should say, Ben Kach, Ben Kach, Korei Mahen, and that would all resolve with Rova's position. So, Abai has a question from a Brita, but the Brita itself is suspect, because we have to change it. We know that Ben Krach is not the correct uh, word to be used, a person to be used here, so he changes it to Ben Kfar. So, Arova says to him, look, if you're already going to change, amend the Brite to say Ben Kfar instead of Ben Krach, then you can also say that that's, there's suspicion about the remainder of the Brite, and you can change from Kore Kim Komo to Kore Imahen, and it's no longer a question on Rova, now it'll be a support to Rova's position. Alright, here we go, Vaiter now, Meichan Kore Adam et the Mishnah now discussed the position or where you have to start reading the Megillah from. So Tanya, we have the Gerson in our Gemara, is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. On the other hand, you can see here that there's another Gerson possibly, which is Rabbi Shimon Ben Al-Azhar. Omer, Mi Balai Lahu. So here's a fourth position as to where you start the Megillah. Mi Balai Lahu, Shnatadosh, Shnatamelech. Sam Rabbi Yochanan, Mikulan, Mikra, Echad Darshu. They all are Doresh, one Pasuk. Which is, So here they write down the entire tokef. Tokef means the main part 
of the Megillah, or the main part of the story. So Mandar Markula, the one who says they have to read the entire Megillah to be Yotzei, Tokfosha Chashverosh. It's talking about the main theme, or the main story, is about the reign of Chashverosh. Because the Megillah begins, Vishnat Shalosh Lamalko, begins in the third year of his reign, and then it ends, later on in the 14th year of his reign, when he's taxing the people. So from beginning to end of the Megillah, it's dealing with the reign of Achashverosh. Manda Marmi Ish Yehudi, the one who says you start reading the Megillah Mish Yehudi, is Tokfosha Mordechai. You have to read the main theme that you're trying to capture here is the experience or the story of Mordechai. So Ish Yehudi is the story of Mordechai. And then again, we mentioned Mordechai at the end of the Megillah, in the last Pasuk in the Megillah. The one who says that it's acharad varimele, which is the promotion of Haman within the uh, cabinet of Chashverosh, then Tokfosha Haman. That's talking about the main theme or the story of Haman. You start from Nedadash Natamelech, Tokfosha Nes. When I talk about the main part of the Megillah that deals with the miracle. So what you have here is actually layers of stories. What the Gemara is just pointing out here is that there are actually three, four separate stories that are taking place here. You have a story about the reign of Achashverosh. You have a story about a man named Haman. You have a story about Mordechai. And you also have a story about a miracle that takes place. And what the Megillah is actually doing is bringing together what are seemingly disparate stories, bringing them together to create a pattern or a storyline. And that is actually proven by the fact that if you ask most people, what is the duration of the story of the Megillah? Most people, I would suggest, would say that, okay, it's about two or three years of duration, right? You have Vashti who's killed. Then you have Esther becomes, replaces him. Haman throws the poor. A year later, we figure out everything's reversed and it's gone. So it's about three years is the length of the Megillah. That's actually not true. If you look at the years in the Megillah, Megillah begins in Shnat Shalosh Tamalko, in the third year of Achashverosh's reign. That's when Vashti is deposed. Esther only becomes the Malka, the queen, about three, four years later. And then the whole story with Haman takes place about nine years later. And the extent of the Megillah is actually, if you look through the entire Megillah, it's over a duration of 13 or 14 years, not three years. And that is what the Megillah is doing. It's weaving together what would have been or what have seemingly independent stories. The fact that Esther becomes the Malkah, the fact that the Megillah connects that to the death of Vashti and the, the Mishti at the beginning is something that's not obvious because Esther only becomes the Malkah a number of years later. In addition to that, when Haman already does the poor, which is nearly nine, ten years later, how do you know that that's connected to the Mishneh? Or how do you know that's connected to Esther ascension to the throne? All those, again, are many years later. The Space and time makes it that the Megillah actually is taking what would have been disparate stories, which what are independent stories, and then weaves them together to make it into a single story. And that's the amazing part of the Megillah. It's done so well that when you read the Megillah, you really think it takes place over a very short period of time, over three years, when in reality it took place over a much larger span of time. And that's exactly what the argument here is about, is these all these different storylines that are included in the Megillah. What's the tokith? What's the main theme or the main focus of the Megillah? And the truth is that it's in all of them, and they're all woven together. So when you read it, all the Megillah, you're actually reading four stories that are now combined to create a single story. And that's what the amazing part of the Megillah is. Right, none of them express an opinion as to where you have to end. They all seem to think you have to go to the end of the Megillah. They only argue about the beginning. Now, I mentioned with regards to Achashverosh and Mordechai, it would make sense to end on the last psukim of the Megillah, because the reign of Achashverosh is mentioned in the last parak as well as the status of Mordechai. With regards to Haman and the Nais, then you might consider having the latter or the end of the Megillah be shorter, although neither of them mentioned such an opinion. But I, I agree that with those latter two opinions that you might consider that maybe you should be able to end earlier because the miracle you could talk about, and then once the poor is overthrown, that's the main aspect of the Megillah or the Nase. And with regards to 
the life of Haman, once Haman is deposed and hung, that's really the end of Haman, once Mordechai and Esther take over the house of Haman. So I think you could consider it, but nobody suggests such opinion in the Gemara. Oh, I mean, nobody says Esther is the main theme of the Megillah, even though it's called Megillah Tester. Right, that is true, right? I think it's called Megillah Tester because of her being a main character. But as we know, that Esther herself is a character who changes very dramatically through the Megillah. You know, Ravaron Lichtenstein has pointed out that in the beginning of the Megillah, Esther is extremely passive. She's run by Mordechai, and she listens to everything that Mordechai says. It's only towards the latter half of the Megillah where all of a sudden Esther comes into her own and then becomes an active participant in the Megillah. So to suggest that you would only read about Esther, even though truthfully she is the main character, she's a character that's driven by other characters inside of the Megillah. And that might be why nobody picks that up as the tokef, as the main theme or the main storyline, because Esther is driven by the other characters. In the end of the Megillah, she does stand up, and she does become a very important character, and she does actually take her own stand. She does not listen to Mordechai. Mordechai makes a suggestion about how she should plead with the king, and she refuses to do that. We're going to see that in a second. I'll mention it then, since we raised this issue now, that she actually defies or disagrees with what Mordechai says and approaches Ahasuerus in a different way than Mordechai suggests. So there is a point where Esther comes into herself, but it's very, very late in the Megillah. So I think that's why nobody says that Megillah Esther, that the main theme or the main storyline is Esther herself. All right, just to note that Yushalmi over here actually learns it out from the word Tokfo, and then it says, Et kol tokef. So each opinion has to do with tokef, and then each word that you add on to that, as Rabbi Yochanan mentions over here, is that et kol tokef. So you have kol tokef, et kol tokef. As you add each word, that each individual thinks you have more than Megillah you have to read in order to get the main theme. So they don't talk about a story theme, but they rather talk about a reboy from the word tokef. That you have main, and then you have more than the main, and more and more of the main. So each one adds on an additional aspect that you have to read. Rav Huna Marmi Hacha. Rav Huna says the source for the different opinions comes from this pasuk, which says, Umara Ualkacha, Umahigia Alehem. What did they see that caused it? Umahigia Alehem. And then what actually happened to them? Manda Markula, whoever says that you have to read the whole Megillah, Mara Achashverosh. What did Achashverosh see? Shnishtamesh Bekelim Shopeta Migdash. That he started to utilize the utensils of the Migdash. Kelim, Kelim Shonim. That we learned back on Daf Yud. Al-Kacha Mishom Techoshiv Shivim Shnin Ve'oifrog. He does the calculation of the 70 years and he sees the Jews are not redeemed so he begins to use the utensils. Umayi Alehem. What was the result of that? The Katal Vashti. Vashti is killed and that's what starts the whole story of the Megillah because the removal of Vashti results in the appointment of Esther and then the story rolls out from there. Umanda Marmi Ishudi, the one who says that you start Mishudi, Mara Amordechai, Dikne Behaman. What did Mordechai do that he got upset or he provoked Haman? Alkacha, what was the reason that he didn't bow down to Haman? Here the Gemara has to come up with the reason. The Megillah actually never gives us the reason why Mordechai does not bow down to Haman. It actually does tell us the reason, because it says that because he's a Jew, he doesn't bow down to him. But it doesn't really give us a real reason to why he bears down. Here the Gemara gives the famous reason, the Shavi Nafshe Avodah Zarah, that he makes himself into a idol. And therefore Mordechai refuses to bow down to Haman. Tosafot in the Gemara and Sanhedrin takes this up. We mentioned this Gemara and Sanhedrin before about someone who worships the Me'ira or Me'ava. Over there Tosafot says that, well, it clearly cannot be that he made himself an Avodah Zarah. Because there is no problem in bowing down to an individual. When you bow, we have it throughout. Uh, Tanakh, it's replete with individuals bowing down to kings, and we don't consider that to be Avodah Zarah. To bow down to an individual is not a problem at all. Therefore, Tosafot makes two possibilities. He says one possibility is that he wore an idol around his neck. He had a necklace of an idol, and bowing down to Haman was the equivalent of bowing down to the idol. Not because you were bowing to Haman himself, but because Haman himself represented the idol with the necklace. That's one. Or the other one, he says, is that it was a Kiddush Hashem that the bowing down to Haman, even though it was not really a Vodah is still Mordechai felt that it was a Kiddush Hashem not to bow down, and he brings other examples of that, where people refused to bow down, even though technically it wasn't a Vodah it still felt or looked like a Vodah and therefore they didn't bow down. It might be, uh, I've heard the suggestion, that 
the possibility why uh, Mordechai did not bow down to Haman is because Haman is from Amalek. And that is emphasized in the story that Haman is an Agagi and Mordechai is an Ishiudi. And Mordechai feels that it's inappropriate for the Yudi to subject himself to Amalek because that would be a reverse of what the Torah demands of us. The Torah demands of us to wipe out Amalek and not to subject ourselves to Amalek. And therefore, Mordechai refused to bow down to Haman because he is from Amalek. But again, that would be the Pashtut of the story of the Megillah of why Mordechai refuses. Here, the Gemara is suggesting it's because he made himself into a Vodah And then what was the result of this? That the miracle happened and the Jews are saved from annihilation. The one who says that you start from the time that Haman is promoted. What drove Haman to be upset or jealous of all the Jews? Because of this. Because Mordechai did not bow down or did not submit himself to Haman. We discussed this again earlier in the Masechta as to whether Mordechai was justified or not. In that there are two readings there in the Gemara by Ravo as to whether it, the Jews had a favorable image of Mordechai, that he didn't bow down to Haman, or would the Jews blamed Mordechai for the whole problem, because the fact that he didn't bow down to Haman is why that we got into trouble in the first place. And then what happened to them? What does that mean to them? To them here means Haman. He's the main story theme here. That's the result, is that he ends up hanged on the tree along with all of his sons. Why did Achashverosh call for the book of the king, of the memoirs of the king, to be brought and read before him? Because of this. Because Esther invited Haman to him. So this relates to a story back on Tedvav Amadbet. On Tedvav Amadbet, all the Amoraim there are trying to explain why is it that Esther invited Haman to the party? So they all give their opinions. And then in the end we say, We still need the reason of Rabbi Lezer Hamodai, who says the reason that she invited him to the party is that it was to engender a jealousy from the king. Meaning that Esther's play here is a power play, basically to cause the king to be jealous of Haman in order that he would then suspect Haman of trying to grab the power, leading a coup of some sort, or consorting with Esther, and that would lead a Hashverosh to get rid of Haman. And we saw that in the Megillah, or back there, the Gemara says, why did he open up the Sefer Zichronot? Because he said, look, who's going to tell me if uh, Haman is really leading a coup of some sort? He says, oh, I must have friends here who are going to tell me. He said, well, maybe I didn't take care of some of my friends, and now they're not going to tell me. So therefore, they read the Sefer Zichronot to remind him of all his friends. Ah, and they find that Mordechai wasn't rewarded. And he said, oh, we got to take care of him because I need him to tell me if Amman's doing something wrong. So that would be what's the story over here. And that's what I mentioned before, that Esther does not listen to Mordechai. Mordechai says to Esther that she should go to the king directly and beseech the king and ask the king to relieve them of the decree of Haman. Whereas Esther does not do that. Esther does not go to the king directly and ask for him. Esther does it through some sort of political intrigue. She does it by playing on the king's fears. And she plays on the king's fears of a coup or someone trying to usurp his power. And one of those examples, exactly this, is that she keeps inviting Haman to the parties along with Achashverosh in order to trigger within Achavishra's mind, wait, why is this Haman guy the only one invited every time we have a party together? Is he on the same level? Is he appear to me? Why does Esther keep inviting Haman to the parties? And again, we know that Achashverosh's suspicion is aroused because when Haman comes to the night time, appears by the king, and the king is reading through Sefer Azichronot, and they say, Mi and he says, Haman is here. And then the king asks him, what would you do for someone that the king wants to treat and to say that, reward him for taking care of the king. He says, who more than me would the king want to reward? And then he tells him what he should do. When you go and read the Megillah, and Hachashverosh tells Haman to do exactly that to Mordechai, he changes it a little bit. It's not exactly what Haman says. Haman tells him, you must do this, this, and this. And then when he goes to the other, he tells him, do that to Mordechai, he leaves out one thing. 
The one thing that changes between the case of what Haman said and Mordechai says is the crown. Haman says that you put the crown on that individual and you make him wear the Levusha Melech and you put him on the Susa Melech and you say, When the king commands Mordechai, the Haman to carry this out to Mordechai, he leaves out the crown. Already there you see a little bit of a nuance or a change in the king that he's already starting to worry about Haman. Haman says, give him the crown. When the king gives, he doesn't give the crown. So already there you see the king starting to worry about Haman. Haman's asking for the crown. The king doesn't give the crown. Esther plays on that and now invites Haman and the king together, which will arouse the jealousy of the king because the king's already worried about this Haman guy. And now he keeps she keeps provoking it. And here is where you see the brilliance of Esther and where she comes into her own in knowing how to get to the king. She knows how to get this done. Versus Mordechai who wants to take this frontal approach of just going to the king and asking for it. Esther understands how to play the political game and is the one in the end who is able to create the situation in which she can finger Haman in a situation where the king's already upset. And the king's already suspicious, which gives her a lot of leverage in terms of deposing Haman. Alright, so now... So Al-Kacha, why did he read the Sefer Zichronot? Because she invited Aman to the party, so he's jealous. What happened? The miracle happens that she's able to turn the tables on Haman. That's a different opinion as to the source for each of these different opinions. Now, The Halacha is like the one who says you should read all of it. Even according to the one who says that you read from the latter parts of the Megillah, starting, like, for instance, from Tuvakula, it all has to be written there. We saw this in yesterday's Gemara as well, which is that even if you suggest that you must read only a portion of the story, the entire story must be written. You can read a portion of the story that is written there, but you don't have to read the whole story. This relates to what Rashi said yesterday about Pursume Nisa, that the requirement of Pursume Nisa is not necessarily that you know every detail of the story, it is that you know the main theme of the story, you know the main idea of the story. So you need the whole story to be written there. But in order to engender the Pesume Nisa, you only have to read the section which gives you the main highlights, because that's all you need in terms of the Pesume Nisa aspect of the Megillah. So now already we just had a statement from him. Now we're going to have a number of statements that are not necessarily connected, all have to do with the Megillah, but Halachot that are separate from what we just mentioned above, which is the Megillah is called the Sefer in the Megillah. It's also called the Geret Apurim. It's called a letter. Sefer. So what does that mean? What's the halachic ramifications of the fact that it's called a Sefer? If you stitch it with flax, then it is Pasul. Like a Sefer Torah, like other Sifre Kodesh, obviously you can't fit the Megillah on a single parchment. You have to use multiple parchments. How do you connect those multiple parchments together? You have to stitch them together. Do you have to say, use something that comes from a kosher behemah or not? Well, for a Sefer Torah, you do. So the question is, by Megillah, does that requirement apply? And the answer is yes. It also applies by the Megillah. Shim tafra b'chutei b'shtan, would be psula, because you're using something that doesn't come from a behemah k'shera. But nikreti geret, it's called a geret, shim hitil b'shlosha chutei gidim k'shera. That if you put into it three chutei gidim, that is sufficient. This also leads to a three-way machloket as to what the requirement here is. What does this shlosha chute gidim kshira mean over here? So if you look in Rashi, Rashi says that the shlosha chute gidim is equivalent to the shilashta that is written by the arei miklat. Just like the shilashta means that you divide it evenly. You break them down evenly. So shilashta means when you put the three arei miklat in Eretz Yisrael, you actually divide Eretz Yisrael into four regions. And then you place the Miklat, the Ari Miklat, on the border between each of those regions. That means that the distance from the southern end of Eretz Yisrael to the first Ari Miklat is the same as from the first to the second, from the second to the third, and the third to the north end of Eretz Yisrael. So you actually divide it into four regions, and then you place the three of them. It's not at the edge. You put them at equidistance at the crossovers of the quarter points. That's where you put the Ari Miklat. The same thing is true here. The Shloshagi Chutim here are placed, you divide the Megillah into quarters, and then the stitches are each placed at a at the location of the quarter points. So you'll go from the beginning of the Megillah to the first quarter, that'll be your first stitch. The halfway point will be your second stitch. 
then the three-quarter point will be your third stitch, and then to the end of the Megillah, and that's it. So that'll be the three stitches according to Rashi. On the other hand, if you look in the Rebbeinu Hanano, I'm doing the ones that are on the daf first, just to make it easy. The Rebbeinu Hanano says, Mishulashim Komar, Hachut Gimel Pamim, Gimel Gimel, so the way that the Rach, the Rabbeinu Hanano says this, is that you actually do one stitch at the top, one stitch in the middle, and one stitch at the bottom. And what's Meshulashim? At each location, you have to stitch it three times. So you do it at the top of the Megillah three times, you do it in the middle of the Megillah three times, and then you do it at the bottom of the Megillah three times. So that's what the Meshulashim. Meshulashim means that you do it at the top, middle, and bottom. And you have three stitches in each location. That's the rach. Now, the in-between opinion is actually the opinion of the rif. The rif who suggests that you stitch once at the top, once in the middle, and once at the bottom. You don't have to do three. That's the mishulashim. Mishulashim is that in three locations. Top of the megillah, bottom of the megillah, middle of the megillah. Now, there are actually two girsaot in the rambam. There's a girsa that we have in front of us, and there's an older girsa of the rambam. And that actually makes a difference about what you do with the remaining space. So, from the way that the girsa in the rambam is found, that gives the Rambam suggests that you put three stitches in of Gidim, and then the remainder you do of Pishtan. You're allowed to stitch up the rest, and you should stitch up the rest with Pishtan, because it's better the whole thing is stitched, but you have to have the minimum three Gidim of stitching. That's one Girsa in the Rambam. There's an alternative Girsa in the Rambam, and the Me'iri seems to have that Girsa, and he suggests that the other way around, that you do three Gidim, and you leave the rest blank or empty. You don't put in Pishtan to fill it in, because if you put in Pishtan, it actually would ruin it. So that's why, if you look in the Shulchan Aruch, when he quotes the Alocha, they say it's very complex. It's complex because you have all these different uh, opinions. And the Shulchan Aruch, in quoting this, he brings in, in Alocha Hey, he brings, If you use flax, it's pasul. Then in Vav, he says, You have to put in three strings, as long as it is Mishuleshet. This is the Shachanach, right? Since there are multiple explanations of this, Tzarech Letzeit, Yidei Kulam, you have to figure out everybody. V'yasena Gimel Tfirot, Berosha, V'gimel Basofa, V'gimel Emtziata. You have to do three stitches at the top, three stitches in the middle, three stitches at the end. That's like the Rebbeinu Hanano. And in addition to that, you will capture the riff, because that's just more than what the riff says. U'tfira achat b'chelika revi'i, mitzad zeh, u'tfira achat b'chelika revi'i, mitzad acher. In order to solve Rashi, you also have to put a stitch at the quarter point, from the top to the quarter point, and from the bottom to the quarter point, in order to capture Rashi. So therefore, you'll capture all the opinions by doing those number of stitches. Haga. Now the Ramah says, If you have no, if you don't have enough of Gidim to stitch the whole area up, you can put the remainder with Pishtan. That's a gold Mamoniot. That's the Diok out of the Rambam that we just talked about. If you have enough to do it all with Gidim, you certainly should do it that way. And again, I told you the Meiri disagrees with that diok of the Agot Mamonio because he has a different gear saw in the Rambam. And our practice in general is to try to use Gidim for the whole thing. But here you have some differentiation between a Sefer Torah where you would have to stitch the whole thing with Gidim all the way down. Here at the Megillah, you, you have to use Gidim like a Sefer, but you don't have to do it the whole way down because it's called an Igeret. How much, or how you do it exactly, is subject to the Machloket that we just spoke about. This is the qualification of Nachman, which we just defined, is it has to be by thirds, Mishulashim. What is the definition of Mishulashim? We saw in Rashi, we saw in Rabbeinu Hanan, and we saw in the Rif. If you read a Megillah, that is in a scroll, that is amongst a scroll of other Sifrei Tanakh, then you're not Yotzei. That's only if it's the same height as the remainder of the books there. If somehow the Megillah is either shorter or taller than the other books, so then it looks like it stands out, then that is fine. Late Lamba, it's not a problem. And as Rashi explains over here, that it's a chisaron in persume nisa. Why are you not Yotze over here? To be in a geret latzma. The Megillah must be an independent book. To mefarsim nisa tvei. That, cause that causes a greater pirsumanes. Because if you just read it amongst other books of Tanakh, it looks like you're just reading some, uh, story in Tanakh. In order to give it significance by itself, and to make it a significant story and have pirsumanes associated with it, you have to have a separate book called the Megillah. So generally it's an Egeret. 
That's how people read it. That's the halacha that we take it and we fold it over and over and over on each other like an Igeret. But he says here, even if you have it within a books of Tanakh, it has to either be taller or shorter, so it has its own definition within those books of Tanakh, or that scroll of Tanakh, so that it has a persume nisa associated with it. Now, Levi Bar Shmuel, Avakari Kameid Rav Yehuda. Levi Bar Shmuel was reading before Rav Yehuda, B'Migilah HaKtuva Ben HaKtuvim. He did it in a Megillah, it was written amongst a scroll of other Sifri Kodesh. Says to him, listen, what's going on here? How can you do this? This doesn't work. So, And right away, he qualified the statement. I mean, he banged it on the head, like he banged the head of the nail right away, which means that he made a statement, which is, someone who reads a Megillah, which is the halacha that we just had brought with regards to Amar of Yehuda, Amar Shmuel. And then we had that repeated by Rav Yehuda when Levi Bar Shmuel read in front of him. But now we have that statement brought by Rav Chir Bar Abba, Amar of Yochanan, and he qualifies it quickly. That's only true if you do it. There's this additional requirement of Persume Nisa that it be a separate Megillah, it be a separate book. But if you're reading it kiyachid as an individual, then you don't need it as much. It's interesting because the yachid has as much an obligation of persuminisa as the tzibur does here. Nevertheless, the Gemara sees it as being important that for the tzibur it be a separate book, so you don't have that mistaken impression that it's just part of the other ktuvim, but it really has its own status. It's not just a storyline in the middle of other books. But for yachid, who knows it and he's reading it for himself, he doesn't have that requirement. What's interesting here is that this. Gemara here is brought as a proof by Tosafot back on Hei Amad Aleph. On Hei Amad Aleph, you have a machlok between Rav and Ravasi as to whether you need a minion to read the Megillah. Rav says you do not need a minion to read the Megillah, Bizmana. Bizmana, you can read the Megillah by yourself or with a minion. Ravasi said you need a minion even Bizmana. And there the Gemara says Rav was Choshesh for Ravasi's opinion. And he read with a minion even though he didn't hold that way. Tosafot in the end says, Aloha Kirav. The halacha is like Rav, and one of his proofs, he says, first of all, Rav is Rav Asi's Rebbe, so certainly Rav, the halacha should be Rav. One of his proofs is that Rabbi Yochanan holds like Rav. How does he know Rabbi Yochanan holds like Rav? Because of this Gemara here. The Gemara says over here is a qualification. When do, can you, when can you not read from a Gilad that is mixed up with other Kitvea Kodesh? That's only when you're with a Tzibor. Implying if you were a Yachid, you could read it that way. But that also implies that a Yachid could read the Megillah and be fine. So you see that Rabbi Yochanan believes that a Yachid can read the Megillah and you don't have to be in a minion. And Tosavad used that as a proof to the fact that you do not need to read the Megillah with a minion on Yudalid, on the 14th, when you do it bizmana. Again, we prefer a minion, we prefer it be Pursuminis even more than a minion. Nevertheless, if you do read a Kiyachid, you are Yudzeh. The leftovers of the stitching string are And again, he banged it on the head right away, he qualifies the statement. Over here, it's not literally a qualification, it's a retraction. That he only did this so it won't rip. So he actually retracts it and says, nah, it's really a din chachamim and not a lachalamoshi misinai. So as opposed to the previous time where it was a qualification that defined the statement before, over here it's really like a retraction. He says that it is the halacha, but the halacha is not really a lachalamoshi misinai, but rather it's a preventative measure, which is that when you stitch the klafim together, you should not tighten the either end of the stitch to the point where it's very tight. Because then it'll have no give. And when you put tension on it, it'll tear. And it, what he says is to leave a little bit of room on both ends, so that when there's tension on it, it has a little give. And therefore it won't rip when there's tension placed on the two clavim when they're stitched together. So that's exactly what he says. That shiura tefer, that leftover part of the stitching, meaning the excess part of the stitching, is Allah And then he retracts it, or really reverses that opinion and says, well, it's really not a it's a preventive measure of the Chachamim, that's what Rashi says, in order that it should not rip. So they say to leave over a little bit so that you don't end up ripping it every time you put tension on the Torah or on the Tanakh. So here again we have a number of memorot from Rabbi Yochanan, so here we have another one, not related to what we are talking about, but because it's a memra of theirs, we bring them all together. Which is, If there was even the slightest crack in the cave in which Moshe was kept, that Moshe was kept in, or the place that Eliyahu went, which is the same place that Moshe was, even if it was the amount of a a hole, the size of a machat sidkit, 
which is a fine needle. Rashi says there are different types. There's a machat sakait, which is a more coarse or thicker needle. And here, this is a kind of fine needle. They wouldn't be able to withstand the presence of a Gadish Baruch or the light of a Gadish Baruch. Nobody can see God and live. So even if there was the smallest crack or the smallest hole in the cave, and then they got a glimpse of a Gadish Baruch, they would have died. So it must be that the cave had no cracks or no holes in it whatsoever. What is meant in the Pasuk and Dvarim? Bahar. And all these things that Hashem spoke to you on the mountain. That on the mountain, Hashem said to him, everything. What is Koladvarim here? Koladvarim includes Diktukei Torah. As Rashi says, that's the Riboy, the Miut, the Etim, the Gamim, the Achim, the Rakim, all the Limudim that come out of the Torah. As well as the Diktukei Sofrim, which is, as Rashi says, that which the Achronim concluded from the statements of the Rishonim, or what we would call the Dine de Rabbanan, those that were read around the Rabbanan, Uma Shasofrim Atidim Lechadesh, and that which the Sofrim in the future will be Mechadesh, Mainiu Mikra Migila, that Moshe was made aware of the fact that Mikra Migila would exist, even though it's not in the Torah itself, it is a Chidush of the Sofrim that Atidim Lechadesh. We have a similar Gemara with the story with Moshe and Rabbi Akiva. When Moshe asks, what are all the tagim on top of the letters for? And of course, Baruch says, because there's going to be a person in the future, it's going to be Doresh, all the tagim on top of all the different letters. And so Moshe goes and sits in the shir, and doesn't understand a word of what Rabbi Kiva is saying, and he's de- uh, depressed, he's upset. What do you mean? This Torah comes from me, and I don't understand a word that's going on here. And then he says, uh, Rabbi Kiva says, that, it's Allah the Moshe Misinai. And that dissuages Moshe, because he sees that it's Allah the Moshe Misinai, spoken at that time and just mentioned it uh, quickly here, and that might be the connection that a person's allowed to be a chadshan, a person's allowed to be mechadesh dvarim, that's what Rabbi Kiva was, he was a big chadshan, he did not have as strong a mesorah as some of the other tanaim, he doesn't have schutavot as well, he is a mechadshan, and many times when he argues on people in the Mishnah, we see his argument is a logical argument, those in the Mishnah are arguing from precedent, or from what they saw, and Rabbi Kiva argues from a logical base, so Rabbi Kiva is a really big mechadshan or mechadesh. And when he says, Allah the Moshe Misinai, why that is which is Moshe is because it's anchored. His chidushim are anchored in the Torah. And that's the important part. When a person is mechadesh things, he still has to be anchored in the Torah, in the misorah that we have. If a person is mechadesh and causes them to leave the misorah or break away from the misorah and that chidush, that's problematic. But if it's anchored in Allah the Moshe Misinai, I mean it's anchored in the Torah itself, then the Chidush is something that is a part and parcel of the Torah, included in uh, the giving of the Torah. Right now, we move on to the next Mishnah. Everybody is ra'oi to read the Megillah, with the exception of a Cheresh, Shotei and Katan. Now, Shotei and Katan are understandable over here. Shotei is someone who's not of sound mind, can't read the Megillah and be mozi other people. Katan is not a Bar Chiyuva. Cheresh over here, as pointed out by the Rishonim, is somewhat difficult. Because if he's reading the Megillah, he's not a Cherish. Because a Cherish in the Mishnah, or classic Cherish in the Mishnah, is someone who doesn't speak and does not hear. He's unable to do either of them. Clearly, this individual can't speak. So it must be, and this is what Tosafot points out, we're talking about a Cherish here who can speak but cannot hear. That's how he writes it. Other Rishonim just suggest that Cherish is just brought down here because generally these three are brought together. Cherish, Oteva, Katan, but that's not really true that the Cherish is included over here. Rabbi Yehuda Machshir Katan. And then Rabbi Yehuda says that a Katan is Kasher. Now Gemara says, Mantano, who's the author of a Mishnah that says, Cheresh di Avad Namilo? That says that Cheresh, even bidi Avad, is not successful at being Motsi someone. I'm Rav Matna Rabiosi. Must be Rabiosi. Titan. A Koreata Shemavlo Shmialos. No. Someone who reads the Shema and does not hear what he's saying, Yatsa. Rabiosi Omer, Lo Yatsa. It doesn't work. You're not Yotse. If you can't hear it, you're not Yotse. So, so to over here. That he'll be the author of our Mishnah. This Cheresh, who is able to speak and can say the Megillah, but the fact that he can't hear himself disqualifies him from being the reader of the Megillah. Similar to someone who reads Kshma and does not hear it, according to Rabbi Yossi, is not Yotze. It says, Rabbi Yossi, Namilo. How do you know Rabbi Yossi is the author of our Mishnah? And the conclusion is that even Bidiavad, you're not Yotze. Dilma Rabbi Yehudi. Maybe the author of the Mishnah is Rabbi Yehuda. Ula that only the Chadchilo you're not Yotzei. Hadiyavad, Shapir Dami. But Bidiyavad, you would be Yotzei the Mitzvah. So, because he's the opinion that disagrees with Rabbi Yossi over there. We'll see that in a second. 
The Mishra brings the three items together. Thereby, it's clear that you're not Yotzei whatsoever. So too, by the Cheresh, it must be that you're not Yotzei whatsoever. So that would only be the opinion of Rabbi Yosei, not the opinion of Rabbi Yudah. Each one according to its own. And yes, you're right. By Shotan Katan, you're not Yotzei whatsoever. But by the Cheresh, you would be Yotzei Bidiavad, and Rabbi Yudah could be the author. It says, well, that doesn't work. The latter half of the Mishnah says, Rabbi Yehuda says, you're You would conclude from that, or infer from that, that Rabbi Yehuda is not the author of the beginning of the Mishnah. Now, over here, there's some problem with the Girsa, because there's a certain amount of redundancy in the Gemara. The way that Rashi says it, Rashi eliminates one piece here, and the Bach eliminates the other piece here. So, we ended up with both pieces in the Gemara, but each one of them eliminates one of them. Either you read Dilma Kula Rabbi Hudi, that's one way to read it, or you skip Dilma Kula Rabbi Hudi and say, Mi Dami Reisha, the Psula, the Sefer, the Kshera. The Reisha is talking about what, who's Pasul, and the Sefer is talking about who is Kasher. So maybe you can differentiate between those two. So either way, the basic premise of the Gemara is that Rabbi Hudi could be the author of the entire Mishnah. Vidilma Kula Rabbi Hudi, Vitre Gavne, Katan. And there are two types of Katanim, Tani law. That's for Chasure Mechser, and you're missing some words in the Mishnah, the transition words, which is Vahakitani Akol, Shirim Likrota de Megillah, Chutz Micher Shoteve Katan. Bamed, Varim Amurim, when is that true? Bekatan Shalogiel Echinuch. That's not a Katan who hasn't reached the age of Chinuch yet. Although Bekatan Shigiel Echinuch, if you have a Katan that reaches the age of Chinuch, Afil Lechatchila, you can then read it, Lechatchila, Shrebihuda Machshir Bekatan, because Rebihuda is Machshir Katan, Shigia the Chinuch. So there is a possibility of Rebihuda being the author of the entire Mishnah. The says, okay, Okay, now what are you going to suggest? The author of our Mishnah is Rabbi Yehuda, and he says, Bidiyavad, a cherish, is Yotzei, even though he cannot hear what he is saying. But then, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with this, Memra? Rabbi Yehuda, a cherish that speaks, but is unable to hear. He can be mafrish trumot, even though he can't hear the bracha that he's saying over the trumot. He can do it. Mani. Who is this? Either Rabbi Yehuda, if it's Rabbi Yehuda, diavad in lechatchila lo. We just saw that Rabbi Yehuda's opinion is that if you can't hear what you're saying, that lechatchila you're not yotze, but only b'diavad are you yotze. Here we have a statement, a Tanaic statement that you yotze even lechatchila. I Rabbi Yosi, if it's Rabbi Yosi, diavad nami lo, then certainly you're not yotze at all, whatsoever. So who's the author of that position that Yehuda, the Rabbi Shimon Pazi brings? Velamai. So what are you going to suggest, Rabbi Yehuda, that it's Rabbi Yehuda is the author of that position? Vafil lechatchila. And even the Chatchilo, you are Yotze, but the Medaber Then Elahad, Tanya, what are you going to do with this Brayta? Which is, Person should not bench in his heart. If you did do it in your heart, then you're Yotze, even though you didn't hear it. Mani. If you say Rabbi Yehuda says only the Chatchilo, you are Yotze the Chatchilo, and Rabbi Yosef says you're not even Yotze Bidiavad, then who's going to be the author of this position? Lo Rabbi Yehuda, lo Rabbi Yosef. You just said now Rabbi Yehuda approves even the Chatchilo of a Cherish. So we have a problem here. We actually have three different opinions here. We have one opinion where a Cherish is Yotzei the Chatchilo. A Cherish Hamidaber Veinu Shomei is Yotzei the Chatchilo. We have a case where it's Yotzei Bidiavad, and we have a case where it's not Yotzei at all. So one who's not Yotzei at all, we know for sure, is the opinion of Rabbi Yosi. The question is, the other two opinions, which one of them is Rabbi Yehuda? Where it says, Olam Rabbi Yehuda, Bachilo Lechatchilo. Now, Rabbi Yehuda's opinion is, even Lechatchilo, you are Yotze by a Cheresh, Hamidaber Veinu Shomea. Velo Kasho, what are you going to do with the Brayta that says that you're only Yotze Bidiavad? Hadidei Hadrabe. One is his opinion, and one is the opinion of his Rebbe, the Tanya. Rabbi Yehuda Omer Mishum Rabbi Lazar Ben Azaria. Hakoreta Shema Tzarich Shiyashmila is no. One who reads the Shema must hear it. Shinema Shema Yisrael Hashem Lokeinu Hashem Achat. You should hear in your ears what you are articulating through your mouth. But that says, Tzarich, So therefore, his Rebbe believes that you have to be Yotze. So in this case, Rabbi Yudu will be the author of the case of Truma, or the case of the instance where it's Toreim Lechatchila, that's Rabbi Yudu's opinion. Birkat Amazon, that you're only Yotze B'diavad, that's the opinion of his Rebbe, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. And then Rabbi Yosef will have the opinion that you're not Yotzei even Bidiavad. Now Rabbi Meomer, Asher Anochi Mitzavacha Hayom Al Levavacha.
Everything is determined by the heart. When it says, well, hashtadati the hochi, now that you brought the opinion of Rabbi Meir, now we can solve all the problems. Even Rabbi Yehuda can hold like his Rabbi and say that only that by Truma, that's the opinion of Rabbi Meir. So we found our third Tana who has that opinion. Rabbi Meir is of the opinion that the Chatchila, you can be Yotze when you are a Midaber Ve'inu Shumea. Whereas Rabbi Yehuda and his Rabbi, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, believe that only Bidiyavad are you Yotze when you are a Midaber Ve'inu Shumea. And Rabbi Yotze is of the opinion that even Bidiyavad you're not Yotze. And that way we can reconcile Rabbi Yehuda with the possibility being the author of our Mishnah. It does not have to be Rabbi Yossi is the author of the Mishnah. The reason we want that is because we paskin like Rabbi Yehuda by regards to Kriyachma. So if we're going to paskin like by Kriyachma, we want to reconcile this Mishnah to the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda to have it be consistent that the Aloha is like Rabbi Yehuda in all of these instances. All right, now we'll just finish off the Gemara here. Rabbi Yehuda Machshir B'Katan. Yehuda says that a Katan is fine. Tanyo, I'm Rabbi Yehuda. I katana iti, I was a katan, vikariti lamala mi rabbi tarfon zakinim belod. And lod, I read before rabbi tarfon and all the zakinim when I was a katan. Amrloin mevim rayam in a katan. That's no proof, because you are testifying about something when you were a youngster. In that you're not testifying, you are now maybe a gadol now, but you're not testifying about something you did while you were a gadol, you're testifying about something that you did when you were a katan, and that doesn't work. You can't testify about something from the past. Tanya, I'm a rabbi, so we have another bright that says, I'm a rabbi, katana iti, kariti the malami rabbi huda. Rabbi, rabbi huda nasi says, I was a katan and I read the Megillah before rabbi huda. I'm relo, emi vim rayam in a matir. That's no proof. Rabbi huda is the one who says that a katan is allowed to read. So the fact that you as a katan read before rabbi huda is no proof to the fact that a katan is allowed to read because you're doing it in front of the person who thinks that's the, that's the, the halacha. So we say, why don't they say the same thing to him that they said to Rabbi Huda, which is you can't bring a proof because you were a katan at the time. So your testimony has no, that is not valid. So Gemara says, There are two problems here. First of all, you were a katan. Even if you were a gadol, there wouldn't have been any proof because you were doing it in front of Rabbi Huda, who's the one who allows you to read before a katan. So there's no proof from that. So therefore, we don't have a proof from either of these instances that the fact that a katan read before others is a proof that a katan can read. Tosafot over here, there's a very large Tosafot on Yutet Amudbet, which has a significant ramifications in terms of Chinuch. Tosafot over here says, what type of katan are we speaking about here in the Mishnah? Is this a katan she'igiyah lechinuch or she'loigiyah lechinuch? In each one of the cases, we have a problem. If it's a katan she'loigiyah lechinuch, then why does Rabbi Yudah say you can be yotze? And the other side of this, if it's a katan shegila chinuch, why do the chachamim say you cannot be motzi? Mikra megila is a din derabbanon, and chinuch is a din derabbanon. So why can't a katan who's chayav midrabbanan be motzi? Someone who's chayav mikra megila midrabbanan. We have that in Birkat Hamazon. The Gemara in Brachot says that that if a son who's reached the age of chinuch benches, he ate amount of bread, the son, and he wants to bench, and the father ate less than an obligation, less than Kadeh Zviyah. So he's only obligated in Birkat HaMazon Midrabanan. Then the son, who's can be Motzi, the father, who's only Chayyam Midrabanan. Tosfot says, why doesn't that apply over here? So Tosfot comes up with a Chiddush, which has important ramifications, it disagrees with Rashi's opinion, but Tosfot over here explains that there's a difference. In the case of Birkat HaMazon, the Katan is chayav mi do'oraita. Had he been a gadol, he would have been chayav do'oraita because he ate enough of kadeis viyah. The reason he's only chayav mi do'oraita is because he's a katan, the father did not reach an obligation to oraita because he less, ate less than its kadeis viyah. He's only chayav mi do'oraita. That means that there's one din do'oraita being mechayav the katan and one din do'oraita being mechayav the gadol and that's why the katan can be motzi the gadol. Over here by mikra migila, it's not true. Over here by Mikra Megillah, the father is obligated, the, uh, the Tzkahal and Sibur is Chayav in Mikra Megillah Midrabanan. The Katan is Chayav in Mikra Megillah Midrabanan. Because of two Dine Dirabanan. The Ikur Chiyuv of, of Mikra Megillah itself is Dirabanan. On top of that, this Katan, who Shigilachinuch, is also only obligated Midrabanan. So he has two Dirabanans that are Mikhaev him. A person with two Dirabanans cannot be Motzi, a person that only has one obligation Midrabanan. In Mikra Megillah. And that's the distinction that Tosafot makes between the case of Megillah and the case of Birgad Mazon. He also does this with regards to Lulav as well. 
He explains this from the Gemara and Sukkah. He does run into a problem, and then it's, why is a Suma? Why is a Suma allowed to be Motsi others? Suma is Chayav Midrabanan and Mitzvot. So why is he allowed to be Motsi others? Because he's Chayav in a Mitzvah Dirabanan, and it's only a Mitzvah Dirabanan. Why is the Suma allowed to be Motsi others? Like, for instance, by Pesach and the Seder, we had cases like that in the Gemara in Psachim, where a blind person was Motsi the others in Haggadah. How is that possible? So Tosfat says, Suma Adif Mikatan. Suma is better than a katan. The obligation on the suma midrabanan has a stronger obligation than the obligation of a katan. Because he's already chayav midoraita, mashaykin be katan. Tosvaro here is referencing something we'll see later on, a chavdalid, which is this is a case where a person was originally able to see and then became blind later on. And that's what's driving the obligation over here. So he was once obligated midoraita. That's what he says over here. Later on in the Gemara, in Chavdalit, uh, Tosvot brings another reason uh, why you would think that a Afilu Hachi Suma Sheish Bo Tremi Derabanan Yotzish Shapir Achirim Kemishu Gadol Ubardat Adif Tfemi Katan. So over there he says that the benefit or the reason a Suma is greater than a Katan is because had he not been a Suma, he would be obligated to Doraita. The Katan is remains only a Din Derabanan because he's not even in the realm or the world of Doraita, and therefore it's different in terms of that uh, distinction. Whereas Rabbi Huda here disagrees with the Chachamim, it says that even though they're trade the Rabbanon, you still chayab because Yesh Lakel, the fish taf, vinashim ayub safek, larog, lashmida labed. Vikachasu Rabbi Huda kigado. Therefore, Rabbi Huda says a katan, since he was part, like what we said before about the women, she afhein ayubo toanes, you can say the same thing about the katan with regards to the Megillah. And that's why Rabbi Huda elevates the status of the katan to a gadol here by Megillah and allows him to be motzi. Others. That's what Tosfat says on Chavdal and Amaralif. It's the reason why Rabbi disagrees with the Chachamim over here. Now, this is Tosfat, the Shitato, that believes that the Mitzvah Chinuch obligates the Katan himself in the Mitzvah. And that's why he says it's a Dindar of a Mitzvah that's obligation of the Katan. Rashi, in other places, says that the distinction is who the obligation is upon. That with regards to the Mitzvah Chinuch, the obligation is on the parent and not on the child himself. Therefore, the child can't be motzi. For instance, in our case here by the Megillah, the child cannot be motzi because the child's obligation of chinuch derives from the parent. The parent's obligated in chinuch, not the child himself. But Tosav believes the child themselves is obligated in the mitzvah. That is the chinuch. The chinuch is that the child now becomes obligated. And that's why he can be motzi others in Dine de Rabbanan. Rashi says the other way, which is that the obligation is on the parent. And because the obligation is on the parent, therefore, in this case, he can't be motzi others. Because he has no personal obligation in the Megillah, even though it's a Din Derabonon. So Rashi does not have to invoke this Din of trade Derabonon, but rather even when a single Derabonon, Rashi says it's a problem because the Mitzvah Chinuch, it devolves upon the parents and not on the child themselves. Obviously Rashi has to deal with the Gemara with regards to Birkat HaMazon. Again, that's the Sugi of Brachot, but this is Tosafot Shitato. Okay, we'll stop over here.